1: Welcome into Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer and I'm joined by my co host Ryan Henderson. Today is our monthly Arch Capital episode where we analyze one stock we own in our limited partnership that is called Arch Capital or the Arch Capital Limited Partnership. After listening to this episode, we hope you get a better perspective on why we own the stock, the major risks, and what we'll be watching going forward. If you are interested in learning more about the fund, search arch capital online or google bing or click the link in our show notes that'll take you directly to the website where you can learn more about it ryan anything to add there
0: archcapitalfund.com because uh or else you're going to get some weird i think like carpeting business so uh no archcapitalfund.com that is the uh the
1: url yep and if you have any questions just DM us on Twitter, email us at the email in the show notes, all that good stuff. Today, we are going to be covering a little-known company called Alphabet, otherwise known as Google, and the company that also owns YouTube, Google Cloud, and a few other things. But before we get to this episode, we have a few housekeeping items. If you are a regular listener to our Not So Deep Dive episodes or these Arch Capital episodes, basically the ones we do are on Tuesday where, where we are analyzing stocks, you should subscribe to our free newsletter and get our show notes and charts with each, each episode. Within this one, we're going to be doing some valuation work that is a bit more extensive just because we're kind of going through the numbers we're looking at when covering Alphabet. And it's nice if you're listening or watching this to get those numbers because we might not say all of them. We might not talk about all of them because it's very hard you know, in an audio format to just list numbers off all the way if you have that newsletter. Can be a great supplement to see how we're thinking. Also, if you like watching these, you can do so on YouTube or Spotify. We're going to be sharing our screen a bit with these. So those are the two platforms that are best. And if you enjoy the show, give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Today's episode is presented by Stratosphere, the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. Stratosphere has clean data for KPIs, segment data that is triple checked for accuracy and beautiful data visualizations helping save you time and frustration digging through SEC filings. We use Stratosphere as our investing home screen. We used it to research this episode, and we're going to be using some charts from them today. And you can too for free by going to stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io and get a discount on any of their paid plans. By using our promo code CCM to get 15% off. All right, let's get into it. These are the ones where we ask questions to each other, but the first one is directed to me. So I'm going to ask myself, What is Alphabet? Alphabet is an internet giant with many, many different subsidiaries, the most important being Google. Search uh, is within that, but it's also all the other Google properties. So you have search, maps, Gmail. What am I missing here? Google Translate. A lot of products, but the main one that makes the most money is Google Search. Second company that they own is YouTube, which as many of you know, who may be watching on that right now, it is the largest do-it-yourself video service in the world, plus with other things like YouTube TV, YouTube Premium, YouTube Music, uh, YouTube Primetime channels. Ryan is going to get to that when he covers the YouTube section. They also have Android. If anyone didn't know that, I know a lot of people will know that, but some people... You might not, they don't really talk about it that much, which is one of the two largest operating systems for smartphones. They also own Google Cloud, which is one of the three big cloud infrastructure providers. Customers there include PayPal, Spotify, Home Depot, and others. Uh, their, the other competitors there would be Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure. Google Cloud has approximately 10% market share. We'll be covering them in depth later in the episode. Uh, Next one, these are some smaller ones. We have Waymo, which is a self-driving car startup. Not really revenue material uh, for Alphabet at the moment. There's also Barely, which is a bioscience startup. There is Fitbit plus Nest hardware systems. Plus, I guess I forgot to include here, the Pixel uh, phone system that they have just started out and they're making hardware now. And then lastly, there is DeepMind, which is the world's premier AI research institution. Uh, Google slash Alphabet owns that as one of their subsidiaries. And for example, they were the ones that solved a huge protein folding problem for the biosciences market through their AI uh, I don't tools. I guess we'll call them that. Tools might be a little bit lame for something so cool as that. And just as important notes before we get into it, we're not going to talk too much about management today, but Alphabet is not currently run by its founders, who are Larry Page and Sergey Brin you're interested in those, there's Google histories talked about constantly. There are tons of them on the internet. Uh, Today though, it is run by Sundar Pichai, a CEO since 2019 and who has been with the company since 2004. So he's a longtime Googler. And then the CFO, chief financial officer is Ruth Porat, who joined in 2015, who's important. One we'll talk about later in the capital allocation segment with the valuation. Okay, Ryan, before we get into the analysis we always want for anyone learning about these companies to kind of know any sort of context. So for the listeners, give any important history and context for the Alphabet business. Sure. Um,
0: So I guess a lot of people have probably heard this kind of founding story, but I'm going to go through it anyways, because I I think it's kind of fascinating. And it explains why they were so successful early on. So in 1997, Larry Page and Sergey Brin were both in the process of getting their computer science PhDs at Stanford. Um, And and while they were there, they developed a search engine. I believe this was as a research project. um, And it was initially called BackRub. Um, I would say good name change. Um, It wasn't the first web search engine. There were a lot out there, but it did have a slightly different architecture. So, at the time, big search engines like Yahoo, their their primary objectives were to keep people on their site as long as they could, um, because they sold display ads. That's you know, that's really how they made money. Um, however, Google or Backrub at the time came along with sort of a different way of determining page relevance. So, Yahoo Yahoo would determine page relevance basically by keyword search, essentially. Uh, how many times does like a keyword show up on a page? They'd, they'd rank that pretty highly in the search results, but there was a lot of keyword. Um, I've heard people describe it as keyword stuffing. So people would just throw keywords into uh, pages and it would be kind of a waste. Like It wasn't the most useful um, article or search result that you could have found. And so Google kind of came along with this different architecture to determine page relevance, which was I think it was called the page rank algorithm, um, which was how many times a page was referenced by another page, and then there was in particular sort of an amplifier effect if it was referenced by a more important page, you know, something, something that's kind of more well regarded. And this, this reference links or this kind of sourcing from other pages, led to more relevant search results when people would query something on on Google search, um, and so it kind of. It began to take off, and Google is really, really averse to trying to run ads. They wanted to avoid it kind of as much as possible. They wanted to be different. I think their slogan in the early days was don't be evil. Um, That was kind of like their company motto. Um, And it wasn't really until they saw someone else do it. I think his name was Bill Gross with whatever company he had um, that they started to implement the Google keywords um advertising and so the, the reason that they felt like this was maybe um more noble i guess you could call it or uh, more merit based and, and more kind of helpful to the actual platform overall is it was a cost per click model so as opposed to a CPM where you're just paying to kind of get brand advertising or or display ads on a on a certain page um google was they, they were it was really performance ads uh, how many times was the, uh, the link clicked it was very easy to to track. And and they this grew really quickly. Um, they found extraordinary adoption. So I read the S1 or, or parts of the S1 this morning. Um, and let me just go through some of the numbers they filed just before going public in 2004. So in 1999, Google reported $220,000 in revenue. Yes, you heard that correctly, 220000 in 1999. A year later, 2000, 19 million revenue. In 2001, 86 million in revenue. In 2002, 348 million in revenue. And they were doing this at a 53% operating margin when they were about to go public. Um, In 2003, so remember 2002, 348 million. In 2003, 962 million. So almost a billion dollars in revenue. In 2003, at a 36% operating margin, they started to invest more. They, it's, it is the fastest growth I've ever seen prior to, and profitable growth I've ever seen prior to uh, an IPO or on NES one at all. So um, just truly remarkable adoption, just incredible product market fit. And it kind of is a testament to how different Google was at the time. Um, they, during their IPO, they raised about $2 billion. It, it was pretty steep valuation. Um and it's kind of interesting that they they were able to raise this much money after the dot-com bubble. Uh, I can only imagine how much they would have been able to raise during. But with the $2 billion that they raised and kind of some additional cash flow that they generated from the business, um, and then some stock, they made three a series of acquisitions that have completely shaped the company. And probably I would say the the best three acquisitions that a single company has made in, in, in its history. So, um, in 2005, Google acquired a floundering mobile phone business called Android. Um, it wasn't necessarily floundering, but it was um, kind of had this. It, it was struggling. It was starved for cash um, for 50 million dollars. So they bought Android for 50 million. In 2006, a year later, they acquired YouTube for 1.65 billion in an all-stock deal. Um, that at the time. People thought Google was ridiculous for paying that much. And then in 2007, in an all-cash deal, Google paid $3.1 billion for a digital advertising company known as DoubleClick. DoubleClick um, gave Google their entrance into the display advertising market um, because they really didn't have the technology for it. They really were still relying on keywords at the time. And the reason that they were able to basically um, take DoubleClick And turn it into the behemoth that it's become is because Google had all the data on where the users would go next. And so they were able to actually track those users and say, even though it's brand advertising where you're running an ad on a display on a website, you know, okay, three clicks later, he looked up Coca Cola. um, And they they were able to provide a tremendous value to businesses for that reason. Um, Those acquisitions have all really helped accelerate Google's top line, but they've also. Really deepened its competitive advantage. And we're going to talk briefly about that in a little bit. Um, And then, in terms of like other important moments in its history, 2015 was when they announced sort of this structural reorg where they changed the name to Alphabet. Um, At this time, Sundar Pichai became the CEO of Google, while Larry Page and Sergey Brin became the top guys at. Alphabet, the parent company, um, and they actually remained there until 2019 when they finally stepped down. Today, they both still remain on the board of directors and combined, they own 51% of the voting power. I find it interesting that it's 51%. So the two of them combined can really, uh, if if they if they both vote the same way, they, they control the company still no matter what. So yeah. Um, Pretty impressive, uh, I guess, history, probably one of the most impressive corporate histories or financially uh, of any business we've ever looked at. Do you want to kind of go through the segments today and maybe some of the sub-segments as well and talk about what's the most relevant and, and I guess the the holistic product suite that Google has?
1: Yeah, and just for reference, for anyone that doesn't know, Google is approaching or Alphabet slash Google, we might interchange it here, is approaching three hundred billion dollars in revenue. I think I just looked it up; there at about two hundred eighty-two billion dollars over the in twenty twenty-two. Either way, say right around three hundred billion dollars in less than twenty-five years from a standing start—pretty darn good. Uh, but yeah, let's go through the segments. They, if you're looking at their investor press releases and stuff like that. They've divided the stuff into segments that uh, you have to really look at their definitions in the SEC filings to know what's exactly included. Um, And I kind of change it into our own sub-segments that I think make sense from an investor perspective. So the first one is their Google search and other advertising. So this would include advertising on search, advertising on Maps, advertising on Gmail, and advertising on Google Play. And that was 56% of revenue last quarter. So Q4 2022. Second category would be YouTube advertising, which they break out themselves. That is self-explanatory. And that was 10.5% of revenue last quarter. And then the third one will be Google network advertising. And these are the display advertisements that Ryan was talking about on websites through AdSense and AdMob. And that is 11.1% of revenue last quarter. So even though they made that giant double-click acquisition, it on its own, it's only turned into... I mean, it's been a great acquisition, right? But it's only turned into, say, 11% of the business today. The search business is much more profitable on that cost per click versus those display ads, which I guess you can click on, but are a little more, I guess, less effective uh, than the, the core search advertisements. But they do reinforce the search business. So as we'll talk about a lot of the moves that Alphabet has made and why we feel confident in the moat today has been to strengthen um the search moat and the search business through these acquisitions that are also have their own business models themselves. Okay, there's two more here, or actually three more that are relevant. There's Google Other. This includes non-advertising revenue on Google Play, so say the take rate they earn from developers, uh non-advertising YouTube services, so this would be say YouTube TV, the primetime TV channels, or the YouTube premium, the YouTube music stuff. This also includes in the Google other hardware devices, and then something they include as other in the other segment. So whatever is included there, who knows, but really this is Google Play, take rates, non-advertising YouTube, and then hardware. And that was 11% of revenue last quarter. Fifth one we have here is Google Cloud which are infrastructure services and Google Workspace subscriptions, but mainly that infrastructure service um, that they have. And Google Workspace is, say, Google Drive mainly, which we're actually using right now. And then if we look at that as a percentage of revenue, it was 9.6% of revenue last quarter. And then lastly, they have other bets, which are internet services like Google Fiber, healthcare services through Verily, and something else. They have another division there. Autonomous Vehicles, DeepMind, and that is only 0.3% of revenue. So these are all their research projects that we might talk about as being a little thorn in the side of their profitability, but those are the ones that are more research projects that could be businesses someday, but not right now. I want to share my screen and show a good chart to outline how all of the other segments besides search are a similar portion of the company's revenue today. If we look at Google Cloud, YouTube ads, and Google Other, and then we're forgetting one here, but there's also Google Network, which I should add on here is kind of the same. They're at about, if we look at the trailing 12 months, uh, get closing in on in between $25 billion and $30 billion in revenue. And these three, especially, I guess the reason I didn't include Google Networks is because we don't really have much of a thesis on that one for that one, how that can grow. But we'll talk about each three of these today. Google Cloud, YouTube Ads, and then Google Other. How they can maybe double their revenue or have a trajectory to possibly—you uh, you, know—it's not guaranteed that all three of them will get there, get to a hundred billion dollar revenue businesses someday. But all three of them are about ten percent of Alphabet's total revenue as of this writing. Um, anything else there, Ryan? Before we move on. No. Yeah. Maybe, maybe
0: addressing how Android is split
1: um, and how. Okay. So and- Android is in. Um, it'll be in Google Other. So, right. And then so they get any fees on that. But, oh, I'll talk about later in the episode how Android works now. A lot of the times they give it away for free. Right.
0: And then Google Play, uh, I guess. Oh, right. Since right, we're not right. talking about Android throughout the rest of the show as much, I don't think. Um, uh, Android has basically given. Uh, the home territory or the real estate of most mobile devices across the world to Google for their add-on services. So it's kind of, um, you could almost think about it as a loss leader because they're able to sell so much beyond that. Um, Would you say that?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I will talk about that during the competitive advantages section a little bit. But yes, that is that is correct. They give out a giveaway a lot of this for free, but then they require the OEMs, which are say Samsung, all the other providers that are not Apple, to use the Google Play Store, which is the equivalent for the App Store for any iPhone uh, people that are listening to this episode. And they also, you know, have to pre download Google Chrome, YouTube, all that good stuff. All right, Ryan. Next question. Now we're getting, now that I think people have understood the business is a tough one to get the hurdle away there. Who are Google's competitors and what advantages does Google have over them, at least in our opinion? And why has search retained about 85% to 90% market share globally? And why do we think that can continue?
0: Yeah, I mean, just for starters, they compete with everyone in, in basically some capacity. But when it comes to search, there's a lot of people um or a lot of takes out there that Google search is going to die and that it's not going to be able to you know tout the same market share that it has today because of some format change or something in some way they believe that Google search is going to die um that's just not. Been the case and we don't think it's going to be the case. So it's no secret that Google has pretty much a monopoly on the search market. Estimates estimates have uh, its PC market share at just over 80% and its mobile share at over 90%. Keep in mind, Google not only domin- dominates mobile search through its own dominance in mobile with Android, but it actually pays to power Apple Safari searches as well. So it's, it's getting... Um, uh, Basically, it's taking share within that search also, Um, but there are still some other competitors. So Bing, which is owned by Microsoft, touts about 5.5% market share in terms of search. Yahoo, which is owned by, I think, Apollo Global, has about 3% market share. So they're still uh,
1: still there. Um, Yeah, and if we look at, uh, I'm sharing a screen here for any of the video ones, Microsoft, and we'll talk about how the competition there is a little bit tougher. Where with Bing, they've gained market share a little bit on desktop, but they are non-existent on mobile.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then just to kind of like, so I mentioned earlier that the PageRank algorithm was an early differentiator for Google's search results, but that…
1: Well, Microsoft, they they have the tech to copy that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That like that style of, of, of ranking pages is certainly replicable, but it begs the question, why has Google maintained its dominance for 20 plus years if it was copyable? And so I found this quote from Timo Buss, who's a portfolio manager at Covesto Asset Management. Um, and he wrote this piece on Google and it was a really good piece and we'll link to it in our, our newsletter as well. Um, He says, for ranking purposes, the company has stopped relying solely on backlinks, that's the sources part that I mentioned, and today takes over 200 different ranking factors into account. Building on its almost 4 billion users, Search generates the largest data set on global search and click behavior, which serves to continuously fine-tune the quality of its service. This feedback loop is an important economic moat as competitors may copy Google's ranking methods, but hardly the aggregated usage data. And you can really see,
1: yeah, Brett. Um, okay. I think you're going to go through some. but before we get on to the next section, I do have something to add on to that. Okay. I,
0: I, I, the it's You see it not in, like, you know, with a common search like um, auto insurance or something, like you'll get a lot of the same links across search engines, but it's in sort of the the marginal or the... The more complex searches, where if you, I recommend trying out the different search engines, and you'll see the different quality of results, um, and how Google's is still uh, still significantly better in certain searches. What were you yeah, saying?
1: I was going to provide an example here. So I think, and again, we'll talk about the AI chatbot tools that have, are kind of the newest threat that people think are going to upset Google. And I would listen or read the latest conference call because. Due to the uh, all the stuff in the news um, and the fact that the Chat GPT three just got released, Alphabet did talk a ton about their AI tools and how they've invested in over the last decade. So they talked about DeepMind and how that's helped powered search. They talked about a few different tools. I forget the name that they've added into the back end of search to really help improve the results for the complex searches versus someone else. So, for example, if you search something pretty complex like how to fix this specific part on a Subaru Outback 2005. Not only will they have like links to articles, but they will link now to the exact moment in a YouTube video where that is hit. So they'll put you at like one minute and 37 seconds. Okay, click on this, boom, it'll light it up. Or if you search for something that's more in the physical world, the Google Maps will be embedded seamlessly as well. So that's why both YouTube and Maps connect Together to make uh, the search the search product better. When you add on all these AI tools that, according to the company, um, are at an inflection point to separate themselves from someone like, well, especially Yahoo, but anyone that that tries to is seriously competing with them, like DuckDuckGo, maybe, or someone who they just have no shot with that.
0: Yeah, and the other, uh, you know, the with in regards to the language learning models uh, like ChatGPT this last conference call was really sort of oriented all around that. Um, maybe even too much, I'd say uh, as a shareholder. Um, but the it, it sounds like they're about to release their own open language learning model um, uh, to the public. And so uh, that'll probably come out, at, I am assuming shortly after this episode airs, recommend trying it out, maybe comparing the two tools. Cause it'll be a testament to, I imagine, um, that advantage that we've talked about, if they're able to launch this that quickly after someone has basically primed the market for them to enter it. Um, I think it's a testament to that that actual data advantage that they possess. Another kind of example, I think, of of highlighting this advantage is the Microsoft competition. So in 2015, Microsoft Launched its own search browser called Microsoft Edge. This was intended to compete, intended to compete with Google Chrome. Um, you think about it; they they have the dominant Microsoft has the dominant operating system for PCs uh, with with uh, Windows, and so it kind of makes logical sense for them to go after this. Um, however, in 2020, Microsoft announced that it's pivoting. Microsoft Edge from its own search framework to instead being built on Google Chrome's open source platform, Chromium. So they themselves basically said, hey, we're not going to be able to find uh, the same level of searches. We're not going to be able to compete with Google. We're going to u- leverage Google and use them to power Microsoft Edge. Um, and there's some other reasons that, that you add Chromium or, or you power on top of Chromium as well. Um, and then on top of it, Microsoft' recent round of layoffs was apparently rumored, and this is more speculative on my side, but it's rumored to be focused around the Edge division. My thought here is they see diminishing returns on on, on investments into that because of Chrome's uh, moat in the space, so um, they're trying to invest less in there. But that that to me is just a prime example of how deeply embedded and how not, not only just their com- current advantage, but how that competitive advantage continues to grow the more data that's uh, funneled through uh Chrome system.
1: Yep. And I'm about to talk about this, how the entry point to the search engine is vital. Uh, and you can even see this. I'm sharing the screen right now, but I'll describe what it is. It's pretty easy. If you look up, what do they call it? Microsoft Edge. So if you, if you're, if you go load up Microsoft Edge at the bottom of your, or on your you know Windows thing, and you pop it up, And you search in Microsoft Bing, Google Chrome, it'll pop up a promoted by Microsoft tab that says there's no need to download a new web browser. Microsoft recommends using Microsoft Edge for a fast, secure and modern web experience that can help save you time and money. So they're even trying to use their kind of monopoly as an operating system for anything outside of Apple. But Chrome has been able to maintain that market share, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. The only
0: real risk uh or or significant competition that I think of when it comes to search, and you kind of raised uh this idea before before we hit record, is there's an increasing amount of search queries among young people that are just
1: the searches are going straight to TikTok and Instagram. And they're not uh, on search engines. Yeah. Like the competition isn't in search engines, kind of non
0: stuff right. that
1: aren't stuff that aren't search engines, but they're using it as it, right? Uh I guess I don't have necessarily a
0: response to that. My thought here is that if if I'm thinking about this as like the people that I know that tend to use TikTok and Instagram, um, very dominant among 10 to 20 year olds. But I think as you enter the workforce, you have an increasing amount of search queries that are done on Google, as opposed to the search, kind of search queries that you have uh, when you're 10 to 20 years old. So my thought would be, those services like TikTok and Instagram aren't going to graduate with those that cohort. Instead, they would probably, I mean, maybe to, at the margins, it might, but still for certain searches, Google is the place to be. Um, and, and it continues to kind of compound that advantage that they already have.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And the only thing I would add on here is that YouTube most likely... Well, I think will be an asset to compete with any of these ancillary products because YouTube is definitely taking market share from itself, uh from sorry, from another alphabet business, Google search, uh, because it's grown so much over the years and now you can search a lot of stuff on YouTube. People probably go there directly when they know they're looking up a video now instead of Google search. And I think that can help them counter position themselves versus Instagram and TikTok, but it's still something we'll be watching closely. Yeah, it's and worth any or go ahead, Ryan. It's worth mentioning that YouTube
0: is the is the second most prominent player in terms of search queries. So behind Google, the place where there are there are the most search queries is YouTube. So it is the second best platform, uh, or second largest in terms of market share. So, the, the, and maybe if if Google uh, seeds some some share, I think that's kind of YouTube's for the taking.
1: Yep, and. We're not going to talk too much about chat GPT here and the language learning models, although we already hit it a little bit uh, because it's kind of TBD. Where There's not really much we can add to the picture because it's so early in that process. But we will be talking about Apple in the next section, which I guess I'll just talk. I'll just say what, you know, if you want to ask me, Ryan. We'll, yeah. We'll, what,
0: uh, so it was, uh, kind of a term that I think was coined by our well, friend.
1: We, yeah, we stole it. We stole it from someone. Yeah. Is it Matt was the first one to mention that, that I can think of? I do not. Although we learned it from Matt, I do not think he was the first one to talk about that, but yeah. It's this
0: concept of moat tests. So, you know, people say, oh, a company's got a moat. Uh, it's it's hard to disrupt what they're doing. A good way to kind of evaluate that is if it's been tested before. So for Google, what do you think are some of the moat tests that they've passed?
1: Yeah. So this will be around... Um, why some of the things that they did to strengthen their business uh, and why all the other things they acquired, all the other products they launched helped strengthen the Google search business today, and then I'll talk about maybe a little bit the upcoming risks, and we'll also hit that in a later part of the podcast. But as the largest single profit pool in business history so far, the Google, Google search has seen numerous competitors over the past 25 years. I think a good rule of thumb that we have um, I don't I'm sure other people have thought about it this way but when you have a large business that has extremely high profit margins as we looked they've consistently had 25 to 30% profit margins while investing in all these moonshots so the Google search business probably has what would you guess Ryan, 40 to 50% margins at a minimum you're going to have competition and when we look at it sometimes your low margin can be the moat someone like Costco someone like Amazon e-commerce but when you have to have when you have high margins you need to have a moat that is outside of the actual, you know, business you run. And Google's done that phenomenally. So they have few competitors today, right? Because when we looked at it, it's kind of hard when it, identifying the competitors when they have pretty much a monopoly. Uh, I guess you have Microsoft Bing as uh, the only one who's deliberately trying to gain market share and therefore advertising revenue. And Bing, as I mentioned before, from that screenshot on desktop revenue has gone from about five percent market share to ten percent in the last decade, which is something to watch. But if you look at kind of historically, in the early 2000s, uh, Google was mainly a desktop slash laptop business. There weren't smartphones, or if there were, they were not. You know, We hadn't had the iPhone moment yet. It had major threats from browsers like Internet Explorer and incumbents like Yahoo, as it was not yet a platform business, but merely a great product that people... I mean, it was the most popular website out there, but they had nothing else on top of it. And in order to fend off these incumbents and tighten its competitive advantage, it layered on new products for customers almost always for free. These include Google Chrome, which came out in 2008, Gmail, 2004, Google News, 2002, which I guess has since died but was popular back in the day, Maps, 2005, and others. Yes, Google Search was itself a great product, as Ryan mentioned before. Uh, compared to the lackluster search engines of the 1990s. But by the 2000s, it was pretty easy to see how a tech la- t- larger technology company could copy them, and Microsoft did. These other products, I think especially Chrome and Maps, enabled Google to pass a major moat test in the 2000s because once they became... Once Chrome became the number one market share uh, with... What are those called? Browsers? They that's how it's hard to describe, but people know what I'm thinking here. I think when you open your computer, you open your phone and you go to search, you go to your browser, you're going to start, you know, you have the one you habitually use. And then Chrome as that market share, they basically make Google search, the default search engine. This is way easier than I'm I'm explaining it. But then on top of that, they connect Gmail, they connect your Google account, they connect all this stuff. It's your home page. It's it's your your landing page. It's your landing page. And it's, very, very difficult to switch. And then there's no reason that you want to switch because the products are so good and free. So how is someone to kind of compete with that? It's very, very difficult. Now, if we move to the early 2010s, Google needed to make sure it maintained its search dominance as the smartphone revolution took hold, because once there's a platform change, you don't know, you got to kind of... Re, there's, there's more competition that's coming down the line. There are threats that any of the platform owners, like maybe Apple, Samsung, who else could launch their own browser or search engine, kicking Google to the curb as the default search engine for browsers on mobile. One more test the company didn't really care about passing or feared it wouldn't pass was with Apple. So where it has it secured a license for Google search on all Apple products, like Ryan mentioned, this license is, license is now running at an estimated $20 billion a year. The exact numbers aren't known. So, they decided not to go compete with them, but basically come and go in cahoots. And if you're an antitrust regulator, maybe ignore this part of the podcast because that is definitely, uh, I mean, it's not anti consumer, but it's definitely anti competitive for those two companies because no one can really compete on search on uh, Apple products. However, outside of Apple, Google made what would, you know, a masterstroke acquisition in acquiring Android and did they get lucky because they acquired it before the smartphone revolution? Maybe. But they once the smartphone revolution took hold, they made some really strong moves and building into the second big player of the smartphone market, which actually has about 70% market share of all smartphones today, albeit with lower income households on average. Um, but the smart things they did was they make it free most of the time for hardware providers to use it as their operating system. All they had to do in return was pre-install Google's core applications like Chrome, YouTube, Google Play, and Maps. And this enabled manufacturers to sell phones for cheap around the world, which is among other reasons why they have that 70% market share for smartphones today. And then to further increase its mode in mobile, the company has started to manufacture its own smartphones called the Google Pixel, um, although it only has a low single-digit percentage of the market right now. It is growing quickly. And on the last conference call, they mentioned that they gained market share in every region around the world. All right, this is a long section, but I'm going to keep going. So Google really passed its desktop and mobile moat test. It also easily passed that voice technology moat test, I guess, from five or six years ago, although that ended up being a lot more bark and no bite. But if you remember, people were saying that voice technology was the future. Um, the Apple license, I think, remains a weak link, which were, you know, uh, along with all the rest of investors we'll be watching in the years to come. I think what's interesting, though, is that if Apple decides to build its own search engine and, and its relationship with Google, Apple Alphabet, excuse me, will probably see a bump in earnings in the short term, but I think it'd start to lose significant market share over the long term if Apple has its own search, search engine on the Safari browser for its devices. However, and here's the point that I think is interesting is because I was thinking about it, um, you know... As someone in the United States that's under the age of 30, the, the downsides of not having an iPhone, which I don't have one, is pretty high for uh, certain activities like courting other potential romantic mates. If I wanted to switch to an iPhone, I think given all the holistic offerings, Gmail, Google Drive, um, YouTube, whatever, I'm missing some, Google Maps, I think I would still download Google Chrome. What do you think Ryan? Do you use Safari? I know cuz it's the default or Let's
0: check right now. I have a Google folder
1: on my uh on your uh, iPhone here. On my
0: iPhone and I've got Drive, Docs, Maps, Sheets, Google Calendar, Google Photos. I don't have Chrome. Uh so I use Safari for search but but Safari you know, doesn't if you're, Safari you're, search, If Safari search started to suck, like if they dropped the Google license and I thought Mm -hmm. that it was like I was getting worse search results,
1: then I'd probably just download Chrome. Here's what the thing, though. I like Chrome so much better. I, uh, I do have an Apple product and we're saying this personally, but I think the examples can go to, you know, everyone because everyone has these similar products. I have an iPad and when I use Safari there, the the. Connecting to my Google account and all that stuff is so much worse that I always go to Google Chrome now when I'm on my iPad, which I guess is not as not that often. So I think it's interesting that counter positioning. I don't know if it's a big risk, but again, Apple could decide to end the relationship whenever they want. And then right now, uh, they're facing that percentual threat from Microsoft Bing with um, the chat GPT 3 stuff, as Microsoft has a really tight relationship with OpenAI, who's kind of they're kind of combining forces to become a competitor. With Google, we'll kind of see what happens there, and then again, we're we're, you know we're watching the Instagram and TikTok threat to see if that ever materializes. But that's really it, Um, Ryan. Anything else to add there? Because I know it's a lot of, it's not a lot of numbers on that one. It's more of okay, think about their holistic offering and how it's tightened the noose around any sort of competition that could really step in. Yeah, I'm yet to think of a moat test that they didn't pass.
0: What's something where they really lost? Well, I mean, they, they their connected TV devices kind of suck, but I'm about to talk to why, talk about why I think they're probably one of the best positioned within connected
1: TV. Um, yeah, home and devices
0: suck, but that's not really much of a moat test.
1: <laughs> yeah, the voice technology, I think, remember when Alexa was getting all that hype and Amazon was marketing it like every day? It seemed like you'd saw, see, see an advertisement for that about five, six years ago. They it came up with Google Assistant. It seems to work fine. But as we all know, Siri, Google Assistant, Alexa don't really work that well. Um, there was a lot of hype there, but it didn't really follow through. I don't know. If, I think the only mode test they didn't pass was the Apple one because they passed it by paying them tens of, over $10 billion a year. Is it worth the price of the data that they ingest to
0: improve their search results? Maybe.
1: Maybe I think, and I don't know. I don't know if I lean one way or the other. I think it would be better for Google to end the relationship just because of the antitrust stuff. I also think it would be better for them to lower their fees on Google Play because it's as we looked earlier, it's way less uh, percentage of their overall profits than Apple's is. So I think that would counterposition themselves better with Apple. But I don't think they're unhappy having this really tight relationship with the duopoly partner there um, in the space. All right. Let's move on so we don't go too long here, although we want to be thorough on this episode. Uh, so we talked about search, we're going to kind of finish that section. And we think it's you know durable, we'll talk about this in the valuation, but you know, fairly low growth. It's already so big, it can only grow so quickly. But there are two segments within Google um, that we think have fantastic long-term growth sp- pr- prospects. Let's explain each. First, Ryan, why don't you talk about YouTube?
0: Yeah, everyone knows YouTube. It's the largest video sharing platform globally. It's estimated to have roughly two and a half billion active users. They don't, I guess, one thing that kind of pisses me off about Google and, and a lot of people are probably in the same boat is they are very vague and they don't report a lot of the same, uh, KPIs every conference call or anything like that. So, uh, it can be, you kind of have to read between the lines sometimes or, or, uh, Base it off third party estimates, but um though in terms of usage, some estimates vary, but most sites assume that average the average user on YouTube spends about a half an hour to an hour on the platform every single day um, and as I mentioned, even behind Google, YouTube is actually the second has the second highest amount of search queries among all other platforms. If you just think about the core product or the core platform, it's really kind of a a, a wonderful business and Talk about why in a second, but it allows for anyone that doesn't know, like the production side of things, or like how people upload. Anybody can upload um, videos that they want. Uh, once an account passes certain subscriber and hours watched thresholds, then they become eligible to monetize their content through YouTube ads. And so, when you're running YouTube ads, the creators collect 55% of every ad dollar. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Brett. And YouTube captures the remaining 45%. Um, it's It's got basically two wonderful characteristics that Brett and I specifically look for in investments, which is user-generated content. So the cost to produce content is basically free. And then wonderful network effects where the more people that are on the platform, the more content there is, the more reason to be on the platform, the more people that go to watch the content, the more incentive there is to produce more content. So um, it's it's really kind of those two wonderful characteristics in terms of advertising. In t- throughout for this whole year, YouTube reported about twenty nine billion dollars in advertising revenue. However, YouTube has also expanded the platform beyond advertising. So this first happened in twenty fourteen. The company first launched. It was called. I'm pretty sure it was called Music Key. Um, it would eventually become YouTube Red, and then finally in twenty eighteen. They, they rebranded to YouTube Premium, but with YouTube Premium, users pay, at least in the US, and I, someone reminded me that it's probably lower in emerging markets, um, users pay $12 a month and they get uh, unlimited ad-free videos. The videos are downloadable, so you can watch them later. Um, you get a YouTube music subscription, which just for simplistic purposes, think it's sort of like a Spotify competitor. Um, and you can also listen to videos once you close your phone so th- that's mostly for music most times but um basically or a, a, a or
1: podcasts
0: podcasts too that's right so uh, if you have a youtube premium feel free to you can you don't have to watch you can just listen to us with your your phone closed but um last quarter sundar pichai mentioned that they had surpassed 80 million subscribers to the service um although that does include trials um and there is emerging markets probably have a lower average revenue per user. But if you just do the rough math, let's say it was $10 a month in average revenue per user, that's probably high. I'm sure that's high. Um, 80 million subs, $10 a month, 12 months, you're probably looking at about $10 billion a year in revenue. Um, That's actually up 60% from the spring. So this is growing really, really quickly. Um, And another wonderful thing about about this product that we've mentioned um, or that Brett and I have talked about before is if you're a YouTube user and you're using it uh, ad supported, so you're just getting advertisements, you've maybe noticed that you're getting a ridiculous amount of ad loads. It's like
1: almost unbearable, maybe not ridiculous ridiculous compared to like
0: linear TV, but
1: I mean, it's still beautiful. You watch what an hour long video, you have like 60 seconds of ads that you can just click through. Absolutely not. No way. There's more ads than that. There's way more ads than that in my, in my experience. And maybe it's, maybe they monetize. Maybe they're Ryan. just, for, maybe they're just friendly to me. I don't the do uh, <laughs> they, they just like me more, right?
0: <laughs> I think most people I've talked to are like, uh, you know, it's kind of the the general sentiment is like, God, they just like loaded up on ads. Part of the reason that they're able to do that. And this should be uh, kind of more proliferated here as, as YouTube premium continues to grow is when YouTube premium go grows and people opt to pay for no ads, um, You've now got more. You've got the same amount of advertising want, advertisers wanting to advertise on a smaller user base. So potentially you can increase the ad inventory or the ad load on that diminishing user base. That's assuming that the, the overall users isn't um, outpacing that potentially, um, and so you can then just increase the ad load to it further incentivize them to upgrade to premium more quickly. So um, it really is kind of that, that wonderful model. And then you you potentially are able to raise CPMs on the advertiser side as well. Um, But beyond YouTube premium. And so I I do think YouTube premium is a really good way, a really good lever to kind of grow the core YouTube product. Um, The other part I really like and thing I'm probably the most excited about when I look at this business is YouTube TV or, or basically their, their presence in streaming. So, in 2017 YouTube launched their live TV streaming platform. Um it costs 40 or 64 dollars a month. Estimates have it at like 5 million subscribers. Once again, they don't really report that, but when you com- when you look at the core YouTube app on on connected TVs and YouTube TV, if you combine the two, they have the number one. They have the most usage of any um connected tv streaming service so second is netflix they are
1: the so largest they're, yeah they're larger than netflix well at least in the u.s
0: but i in would guess that they're,
1: i would guess they're larger internationally because yeah, i mean
0: streaming you, connected streaming tv in general isn't as big abroad if i'm not mistaken right. yeah it's, it's more um although it's getting there but yeah it's more mobile devices yeah yeah but i mean uh, okay, I'm a big believer in connected TV. Like the market as a whole, I think it's hard not to be. If you look at it right now, about 40% of all TV viewing in the United States is is done through streaming um, or connected TV. Only about 10% or less of TV advertising is on streaming. So there's still a ton being spent on linear. More and more people are beginning to transition to streaming. We're starting to see a bit, a lot of the big rights holders, so the NFL companies like that, um, uh, offer. A lot of their um, games and content to streaming providers even though there might be a smaller audience they know which direction it's heading um oh and you you,
1: youtube just signed that deal for nfl sunday ticket which should it's it's a way to get the older audience i think connected to the youtube ctv ecosystem and bring them them in and say okay this can be your home screen and then also ryan you're about to add on this other thing that is going to help enhance that as well
0: yeah i mean there's this there's a whole bunch of stuff they're doing so one of the things is primetime channels so here's a quote from if you just look up primetime channels it says to combat the growing complication of subscribing to multiple streaming services to find the shows and movies you want to see youtube has devised a new feature called primetime channels primetime ch- channels allows you to view 30 plus streaming services all from the youtube app basically it manage, it allows you to manage all your subscriptions within one place it's becoming and i could and maybe isn't there yet but it's becoming sort of the home screen or the home destination um uh on the in the connected TV universe, universe despite not having the hardware or not being the leader
1: in the hardware and they have Chromecast but yeah it's it's not it's losing to Amazon and uh, Roku
0: yeah right now about 66 billion dollars is spent on linear TV ads in the US each year i imagine most if not all over time eventually will begin to move over to streaming YouTube's the number one beneficiary in my opinion they They are the best positioned to benefit from that, and this is incremental I would think I don't think it cannibalizes the core YouTube ads in any way. Um, it's incremental to the YouTube ad revenue they They've become the go to platform for connected TV
1: exactly. they don't have to build something up from scratch like Netflix is doing. Um, Amazon is pretty good pos- you know well positioned as well uh although. I said that's strange. With the sports stuff, although just not nearly as large as YouTube. I think what would be interesting for them is or what I will be watching is how aggressive they get with the sports rights because that could help accelerate the transition for this, all this advertising revenue, even though sports rights, as we've talked about before, uh, for any core listeners to the show, you, you don't really make much money. Um, and then the only other thing I would add here is I don't want to sound like a simp for Alphabet or YouTube, but if I was going to subscribe to a new streaming service, I would probably do it through the primetime channels. If I had a CTV, that was my, my home TV for that, because uh, I'm going on YouTube a lot for that. And I'm basically how I envision it is you go on there, there could be some videos you want to watch. If you don't find any videos, okay, I go to that channels button and I look at, I look at those as some of my options as well. Instead of, and I know it's a first world problem, it's just a little bit slower. They go outside of the app, inside the other one, outside of that app, inside the next one, right? People have had that frustration before. Um, and that's the downside of, I guess, the streaming model right now.
0: Uh, let's talk about the second sort of growth lever under Google's umbrella, which is Google Cloud. you want to go through that?
1: Yeah. So the cloud business, I think, is one where anyone that's an expert in the industry, we're going to have the least knowledge here about any of the segments. Uh, YouTube, I think we have pretty good knowledge bases, people that use the platform and... As both a creator and a um, user, as everyone else in the world does, but this one possibly has a better growth trajectory than YouTube. Even though we sound excited there and think YouTube can probably holistically get hundred billion dollars in revenue within five to seven years, um, I think it's possible for them to maybe. Now, this is a moonshot that might be a little. This might be a little big. It's possible for Google Cloud to ten x the revenue over the next ten to fifteen years. Yeah, maybe four to five x is probably more realistic. But either way. That's pretty strong growth. And for anyone that doesn't uh, know, Google Cloud is a competitor to AWS and Azure and other cloud infrastructure providers. Let me pull up the shared screen here on Stratosphere. Remember, use stratosphere.io. Tell them we sent you and check out all these cool KPIs. Okay, the screen share is loading. There we go. Ryan, you can see that, right? So if we look at AWS revenue, Microsoft cloud revenue, and Google cloud revenue, Google is significantly smaller. However, um, and they're at about 20, say just under $30 billion, but uh, AWS is at $80 billion. And then Microsoft cloud, which is not just Azure, because Azure itself has lower uh, revenue than AWS, is at $100 billion. But that's a more holistic offering. Um, Either way, though, Microsoft and Amazon are much larger. But Google Cloud has retained that 10% market share. And part of our thesis here is given the, you know, the high switching cost of cloud, um, all that stuff, there's going to be, it won't be hard for Google Cloud to retain or even grow that 10% market share across the world. Um, last quarter... Google Cloud hit $7.3 billion in revenue and has a run rate now of $29 billion, so very similar to YouTube uh, advertising. If we look at their growth, though, it's quite phenomenal. That is up from a run rate of just $6.9 billion in Q4 of 2018, or more than 4x the revenue base in less than five years' time. Um, It looks like in late 2022 and early 2023, it'll be a slower period for cloud growth, given what all the major CEOs have been saying on their conference calls. They've seen a deceleration to about teens growth. Uh, Microsoft is growing a little faster, but and Google Cloud, they didn't mention it, but AWS mentioned that they're down to 15% growth, although they're at a much larger size. So on a nominal basis, they're actually growing faster than Google Cloud. But either way, we think, and as someone who's not, you know, experts in the industry, we think there's a reasonable path for the industry to grow at 10% to 15% a year on average this decade as almost all of the IT spend around the globe still does that slow transition to the cloud because of its flexibility, because of its cost savings, that all the big three achieve, and each year, the big three, which remember is Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, are going to achieve further economies of scale. Because, just as an example, none of these smaller startups are going to start designing their own chips. None of them. We don't need to get into all that. But if if they retain their market share, and you know, we think it is likely that uh, they will, the segment can. I don't know, five to six years from now, Ryan, just being conservative, hit $100 billion in annual revenue on 20% operating margins. That is about $20 billion in annual profits for a business with extremely high switching costs for its customers.
0: I went a little more conservative on my estimates, which we're going to go through here in a second. Um, But... it's it, No one knows. Uh, I mean,
1: well, we don't know the exact timeline. We don't know the exact yeah. timeline. Uh, uh, it could be a little longer, but either way, we, can, we we like this business because they can invest a lot of capital up front and they're going to get that returns with very high switching costs over time. One thing to note, though, is that it is important to see that Google Cloud operates at a loss today. They had 7% operating margin, uh, excuse me, negative 7% operating margin last quarter, and that is the best they've ever had. Um, This has been a headwind for Alphabet's consolidated earnings, but will start to become margin accretive in the next few years. We we don't know exactly what Google Cloud's margins will be at scale, but with AWS at around 25% to 30% margins, we think at least 20% is reasonable. Ryan, anything else to add there before we go into some of the numbers and what we are looking for financially from Alphabet over the next few years? No.
0: I mean, it's kind of the one area that you know we're not experts. I would maybe just say we did have what I think to be a cloud expert on the show a while back. uh, His name is Sean Wang. He talked about the space and he had a lot of optimistic things to say about all three of the big cloud providers. So um, I would maybe go listen to that if you want to listen to an expert, but it it seems primed for structural growth over the next decade. Uh, I'm going to talk through the valuation and give some of the assumptions. I know this can be difficult to digest in an audio format. So like Brett mentioned, feel free to go check out the newsletter. It's free, but it it gives like, it's easier to look at sometimes. Um, Today, the market cap is about $1.26 trillion. They've got essentially no debt. I mean, it's tiny, just a little bit, um, and $130 billion in cash. So I'm just going to call it enterprise value, 1.14 trillion. So um, plenty of cash. They also have, I'll maybe just talk about this because we always talk about the balance sheet and stuff on our not so deep dives. They've got $30 billion in non-marketable securities. Um, A lot of- Google Google ventures. There we go. Uh, They like to play VC. They do like to play VC as always kind of, I don't know, market how, how you want, um, yeah I think it's fairly they're gonna have to write,
1: yeah yeah go ahead, keep going sorry.
0: I think it's fairly reasonable to assume like some of that is, is you could include in the e v um I will probably wouldn't include all of it, and maybe you know maybe those investments actually turn out to be really good investments. It's hard to tell um but it it's a small percentage of their cash balance um but here's I guess if you're just looking at it on face value. Over the last 12 months, they generated $60 billion in free cash flow. So just face multiple, it trades an EV to free cash flow last 12 months of 19 times. Not not too crazy expensive, in my opinion. Um, Over the last five years, they've reduced share count by about 1% annually. Um, They've ramped up that buyback a little bit and... Uh, the valuation has come down a little bit as well. So I, I would think that they're going to accelerate how much they can reduce shares by over the next or over the coming years. I'm, I'm not only in 2% share declines, but you can you can do 1% if you want. Basically, it, it's kind of difficult to make assumptions for Alphabet because there's so many different moving parts and it's kind of, um, they kind of consolidate a lot yeah, of them. Yeah. You don't know how much- mm-hmm. So, you know, you could go through and say like maps is going to grow with 25%, and really it'd be really difficult to make any sort of assumption. So, I just took the three big ones that they report uh, services, cloud, and other bets, and just made some underlying assumptions. So, I think services with the steady growth of search, the upside of YouTube, um, and then the upside of some of the other things in there as well.
1: So this is just to be clear for the listeners, everything except cloud. So consolidating all that YouTube, all that Google Play, and all the search into one.
0: I think that business can grow by 10% annually. Um, Obviously, that's a rough estimate, but uh, they've done that historically. um, And I think they have levers to do it still and that they operate from a position of strength in pretty much all their markets. Um, And then I'm also assuming steady state operating margins of 38%. That's what they did last year. It's come down slightly because they had an elevated sort of—you uh, could call it investment year, but really expense year—and um, they're they're working to, I think, get back to that those margin levels. So, if you assume 10% annual revenue growth, 38% margins, five years from now, that's 150 billion dollars, a little more in annual operating income. Second one, cloud. Once again, hard to assume what the growth rate is going to be here. I think this can grow at 15% annually. Um, over the I next think five pr- years, I think,
1: yeah, and I think that's pretty conservative. But
0: we, yeah, we again, 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 we don't
1: know. We we're, we we're, we're, we try to be conservative with cloud because we don't know anything about the industry.
0: Yeah, and then I say fifteen percent operating margins uh, is what they'd reach. Mm, AWS does thirty percent, so. I don't know, who knows, really. They say they're prioritizing getting to profitability within the cloud segment. That's what Ruth Porat talks about a lot. Hard to know what they think steady state margins will be like. But I think 15%, if this reaches the scale of an AWS at any point, I I mean,
1: I think it's fair to assume
0: they can reach 15%.
1: Yeah. And yeah, cloud is not going to be, even though it might be a revenue driver for the next five years, it's not going to be... Really a free cash flow or income driver until the, say five to ten years from now, not zero to five years from now
0: yeah um, so fifteen percent growth, fifteen percent operating margins we're looking at eight billion dollars in annual operating income five years from now that, uh, once again, I think that could be higher, but it's hard to, it's hard to tell other bets this is literally impossible to predict uh, if anyone has some really advanced model
1: i'd love to know show me your waymo model i'll update my price target
0: yeah the uh i just i'm just assuming that it burns seven billion dollars a year in operating income for each of the next five years the reason i say that and they burned six billion last year they're actually going to move some of those expenses some of those ai expenses um into corporate expenses so the other bets losses should uh shrink a little bit but over time they tend to invest more and more in there so um, I think seven billion dollars is is in in losses. It's fair. Basically, you combine all those. You're looking at roughly right a, right around 150 billion dollars in annual operating income um, in five years. I think they're going to spend most of that buying back shares, returning it to shareholders, um, and they convert about 80
1: percent of their operating income into free cash flow. So, and right now it's elevated because of the capex on the, the cloud. But either way, that's I. I... The numbers work the way you do it. It could be higher, but uh, it's kind of hard to tell,
0: All right? So I'm just gonna I'm just going. I, I probably could have start started with this. I think there will be 125 billion dollars in free cash flow in five years for Google. 12 dollars in free cash flow per share. So um, I think free cash flow per share will slightly outpace free cash flow growth thanks to the two uh, percent share reduction. That's kind of what we're modeling out. Um, if you apply, and this is where it becomes an art, not a science. A, a free cash flow multiple of 17 times that's slightly below what their their multiple is today um but i think this is widely regarded as one of the best digital businesses in the world and if they're still kind of showing the same strength and durability that they're showing today i see no reason why I would have a like a way more discounted multiple so 17 times you get to a $204 share price it's basically a 14% cagr from Today's price. So and we're recording this when it was like at I think it was at like
1: hundred five bucks this morning, roughly. So interestingly, it's right around our cost basis today. Um so really? this is kind of the same stuff we were talking about. That's my yeah.
0: that's so I I try to walk through the model, I guess. Uh pretty yeah. simplistic, hard to be too advanced here. But I would just Oh wait, t- no,
1: it's it's easy to be advanced. But I think it's false. We we both agree it's false precision.
0: Yeah. And maybe I'll just lead into where I could be wrong um, because we're about to talk about our pre-mortem. So, so why would this make a bad investment? Um, I think the primary reason that our assumptions could be wrong is just around margins or lack of cost control. Obviously, if there's like a deeper recession, advertising budgets could get hit. But I, I mean... I think there's mode around search and there's strength with YouTube right now. I'd be very surprised if Alphabet's services revenue was less five years from now. I mean, I really expect this business to grow at a healthy rate. My concern is just around cost control. As far as costs go, I think Ruth Porat, the CFO, said something that was important on the most recent conference call, and they are incredibly vague. They don't give guidance. They don't kind of give any... like. False precision around costs they expect to, or, or savings they expect. Here's all she said. She said, when we talk about being focused on delivering sustainable financial value, that obviously means that expense growth cannot be growing ahead of revenue growth. I know that's like a very simple thing to say, but if they execute on that, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be able to achieve the profit margins that we assumed. So that, I, that's my only concern just cost control you got to hold their feet to the fire i think uh especially in the later quarters of this year um you want to see those costs come down but what what about you what are you looking at
1: yeah and I, it would be not, i don't think it's going to happen but it would be nice to see them lay off more employees because they they really just have too many versus the size of this business um but for reference
0: and and the i mean they they have exorbitant costs for no reason they we live in Seattle. I drive by there. I drive by these headquarters they have in Seattle. There's no one in them ever.
1: Yeah. And yeah, it's they, like
0: primary, prime real estate.
1: Yeah. Right down uh, by Amazon's, They also have some on the east side of Seattle as well. It's that doesn't really get used. And yeah, it's just tough. I mean, they talked about having to uh, let go 30 massage therapists from their headquarters. Yeah. I, the good thing is their costs can't get worse because they were the leader in exorbitant costs among the Silicon Valley companies. So as the leader, they were still able to maintain that margin. However, it's just TBD and whether they get that balance right. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Uh, yeah, the, the main things uh, that I'm looking at is a reason to sell Alphabet. And I think one is our thesis is incorrect on the outside growth potential at YouTube and Google Cloud. I think this is probably a two to three year time horizon for us if we're not seeing that growth. Over the next two to three years, we are probably wrong there. I don't know if that's a reason to sell because who knows how strong Google Search will be then. But if Google Search is only growing you know, not not, not that fast, then it it could be a concern uh, because we do still need some growth from these prices. The second one is the company, like we just talked about, is unable to bring in the cost. Uh, Management said that they will be addressed in 2023 and 2024 as it's kind of a slow process, but still really... They hired 3,000 people last quarter. We, we want to see that employee count stabilize. I mean, they don't need to fire everyone like a Twitter, but again, we just need to there's no reason we shouldn't be seeing incremental margins higher um, and operating margins tick higher over time, and they haven't really, which is interesting. And then third, I think, is the continued market share losses to Bing and or outside threats like TikTok. And Instagram taking up more advertising market share for those search adjacent stuff, as we addressed earlier. And then I think another risk that is more of an uncertainty is if Apple decides to decouple from the Google relationship um, or if they're forced to. I have strong, I guess, maybe to sum things up, and Ryan, you can talk anything else at the end if you have any closing thoughts. I think I have strong confidence Alphabet meets our three core criteria. For an investment, which is durability of the business, cheap valuation, and trustworthy management. But we'll be watching, you know, to see over the next few years if they're wrong or any of these things erode. Because if management is saying all these things about AI right now, they're saying all these things about um, growing expenses slower than revenue, but it doesn't actually happen. Then we have to, you know, we have to make sure we come back and say, okay, we were wrong about that. Um, what does that mean? Can we trust management going forward? I don't really put too much weight about what the numbers are going to look like in 2023 from a profitability standpoint. I don't know if you do either, Ryan. We do have to kind of, you know, we try to have a three to five year time horizon. Um, but I will be looking for at least in Q3 and Q4 of this year, or even s- sometime soon, I guess, for margins to get back to where they were and where they can be given the size of that search business, and they can kind of have those other bets and have the research projects, but not really you know, change operating margins, taking them down from getting close to 40% down to 25%, which is just a monumental change for a business of this size. Ryan, any closing thoughts?
0: No, I think that uh, we've, we've gone for a little over an hour now, so I think that hopefully summarizes the business um like, like we've mentioned a couple of times, we're going to have a bunch of links and additional reading attached with the newsletter. So if you want to check any of that stuff out, um, just look up Chit Chat Money Substack. You should be able to find us.
1: Yep. And thanks again to stratosphere.io for providing a ton of data that we can use for the episode that is stratosphere.io. Go check them out for free. Tell them that Chit Chat Money sent you. All right. We're not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Again, as another disclosure, if you're interested in the fund, after listening to this episode, check out the website that is in the show notes link and you can sign up to our letter um, distribution uh, if you're more interested in that. Thank you all for listening. Any other disclosure, Ryan? No, I I think I hit that. Yeah. Just that. I got everything. Okay. We'll see you guys next time with our not so deep dives next month are financials. So we're gonna look at some interesting financial companies, switch it up from big tech, more niche stuff going forward. Okay, thank you all, we'll see you next time.